Are you searching for freedom? Feeling stuck, but unsure how to release your potential? Wondering what the world would look like under the reign of a generous, liberating king? You know, the Old Testament book of Exodus offers some fantastic insights. And that's where we're headed, coming up on The Land and the Book, A Journey to Freedom. Plus, we'll keep you updated on current events in the Middle East and more on The Land and the Book. Our host, as always, is noted Middle East scholar, Dr. Charlie Dyer. And I'm John Geiger. Charlie, we're just back from a trip to Israel. Lots of great interviews captured there. We're going to be releasing those in the weeks and months ahead. I think listeners are going to appreciate that, Charlie. I think so, too, John. You know, anytime we're in Israel and get a chance to do those interviews right there on site, it just adds another dimension to this program, and uh, that's what makes it so special. Maybe you have wondered what it would be like to learn Hebrew. Would you love to explore the Bible in one of its original languages? Or maybe you've got a trip coming up there yourself, and you'd like to better communicate when you visit Israel. And to help you get started, our friends at Life and Messiah invite you to attend a free introductory Hebrew lesson with experienced Hebrew teacher Melissa Briggs. This group lesson over Zoom is suitable both for those interested in biblical Hebrew and for those interested in modern Hebrew. Melissa is passionate about making the riches of the Hebrew language accessible to everyone. To sign up for this free lesson, all you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo there, and sign up. Be sure to sign up today and begin your journey of learning Hebrew. Well, Charlie, it's good to be back home. It was great to visit Israel, but, you know, no place like home, right? That's right. That bed feels good when you get back. (laughs) We certainly saw the increase in tourism during our time in Israel. Uh, As the number of tourists visiting there increases, the government has been working hard to make sites more accessible. What are some of the newest sites being developed by Israel's Ministry of Tourism? You know, the city of David just continues to fascinate me. It grows, it expands. It's fascinating watching them continue to uncover, for example, the Pool of Siloam from the time of Jesus. Over the past few years, we've watched them uncover Magdala. We watched them prepare Lakish for this influx of tourists. Uh, But we weren't able to visit a couple of the new sites on this tour. Uh, One of them is Hippus. It's also called Susita. Hippus is the Greek word, Susita, the Hebrew word for horse. Uh, Horse Town is there on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, just behind the Jewish kibbutz of Engev. The ruins discovered there are from the Roman and Byzantine period. They include several churches. Hippus was the northernmost of the Greco-Roman cities known as the Decapolis, and it's very likely the hometown of the demoniac named Legion, who was healed by Jesus. Uh, The site just officially opened for tourists, and the parking lot area hasn't even yet been completed. That's why we couldn't get there. However, hopefully this is going to become a stop on future trips because it offers a great overlook of the sea from the east side. Uh, The other site about to come back for tourists is the site of ancient Samaria, Sebasti. Uh, This was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel built by kings Omri and Ahab. Now, I was there several years ago, multiple times. I, I found it fascinating, but the site had gone into decline due in part to the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. Israel just approved almost $9 million to begin restoring and developing the site. And that includes adding a tourism center, building new roads, providing additional security to maintain the site's integrity. One of the fun things about visiting Israel is that there are always new things to see and do. And those new sites will soon include Hippos and Samaria. 
Archaeologists are discovering how sand has been both a blessing and a curse in the Middle East. What specifically are they learning about sand and civilization? And Charlie, I'm finding it hard to believe that sand could be a blessing. Yeah, well, for one thing, what they've learned is sand can quickly cover an area. You know, whether it's the ruins at Caesarea or many of the sites in Egypt and Mesopotamia, sand is always pushing at the edges, trying to reclaim productive farmland as well as ancient cities. Uh, In Iraq, archaeologists are fighting a relentless battle with the sand. Some sites that have survived for millennia are now being slowly buried again by sandstorms. Now, some link these sandstorms to climate change. But the reality is the sand has sought to reclaim many of these sites for centuries. When the sites are abandoned, whether by population migration or drought, or because of the diversion of water through the construction of dams and irrigation, well, it doesn't take long for the sand to begin reclaiming what it had once lost. In the next 10 years, archaeologists estimate that due to the increasing desertification, sand could cover 80 to 90 percent of the archaeological sites in southern Iraq. Now, on the other side of that equation, archaeologists have also discovered how those in the past dealt with the same issues. After all, the sand was there as well uh, back then. So about a thousand years ago, the area around Caesarea was covered in sand, and the farmers in the area developed a new style of agriculture that used the sand to their advantage. They piled the sand into berms 13 feet high, about 65 feet long, to create a checkerboard group of 370 separate farm plots. The archaeologists discovered guard towers, storage facilities, and residents for those who work there. The archaeologists estimate it would have taken the equivalent of about a million work days to construct the complete sand farming complex. Now, they believe those plots were used to raise vegetables. Uh, the water table is only about a foot below ground, so the plots already had access to fresh water. And the crisscross design well, it cut down on wind erosion. It created something of a greenhouse effect. Uh, the bottom line is that People and water can help make the desert bloom, (laughs) but take away either one and the desert will reclaim what it had earlier lost. That's Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Old Testament scholar, Middle East expert, and our host here on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with a look at current events from the Middle East. Alzheimer's is a dreaded disease that is on the rise. Thankfully, researchers in Amazing Israel are looking for ways to tackle this fearsome foe. So what are some of the most recent discoveries concerning Alzheimer's coming out of Israel's laboratories, Charlie? Well, this is an exciting story, I think. By the time Alzheimer's has been diagnosed, brain cells responsible for cognition and memory have already been damaged. Uh, We now have some drugs that can help slow the progression, but they aren't able to roll back the damage that has been done. And that's why this new research is so encouraging. One set of researchers experimenting with the use of Theranostics, that's combining diagnostic biomarkers with targeted therapeutic agents to identify and treat the earliest pre-symptomatic signs of Alzheimer's to stop its progression before there's irreversible brain damage. Uh, The research is highly technical, but rather than targeting the amyloid beta protein thought to be the problem, uh, they found that earlier structures called oligomers are the true culprit. They develop small peptide molecules that can get through the blood-brain barrier to stop the formation of these oligomers. In animal studies, they were able to halt the disease before the oligomers formed amyloid beta protein plaque. The molecules that were developed showed no signs of toxicity. The goal now is to develop this into an experimental drug that could eventually be used by humans. And a second study, currently focusing just on mice, has developed an artificial molecule that appears to cure Alzheimer's. 
This group of researchers gave the drug to 30 mice suffering from Alzheimer's as they developed them, and all 30 recovered, gaining full cognitive ability. The drug specifically focused on the mitochondria and helps prevent neural cell inflammation and death. Uh, They've now developed a startup company called Tamarix, T-A-M-A-R-I-X, to develop the drug with a view toward clinical treatment. Now, unfortunately, they expect it to take seven to 10 years to make it through all the regulatory pipeline, but hopefully both of these new advances will be available to treat Alzheimer's in the not too distant future. Wow, that is an encouraging story. Thank you, Charlie. The biggest source of energy on the planet today is not coal or oil, not natural gas or wind or solar or even thermal. It's waste heat, the heat lost in the use of these other sources to power equipment. Well, Israeli scientists have developed a waste heat engine to help recycle this lost heat back into energy to help reduce the use of fossil fuels. Now, how exactly does this waste heat engine work? Well, it starts with a known scientific fact. 70% of the energy generated by humans is waste heat. And that's the energy lost to heat in the running of everything from car engines to generators to the running of large industrial plants. An Israeli startup called Luminescent has developed a technology to capture waste heat and turn it into electricity. Now, this allows a factory or other heat source to operate itself at a lower cost or to sell the excess electricity they generate back to the electrical grid. While some heat energy recapture is being done at large factories, Luminescence focusing on small power generators that comprise most of the market. Their waste heat engine will be available by the middle of this year as a pilot, with sales starting in 2025. Their engine uses a heat transfer liquid, which flows into a nozzle where it's mixed with pressurized air. The bubbles expand the liquid, converting it into kinetic energy, which then operates a generator. Now, this can double the efficiency of the original engine while using the same amount of energy. Generating more usable energy from the same amount of fuel is the kind of efficiency that could help reduce our use of fossil fuels. And that sounds like the kind of efficiency we've come to expect from Amazing Israel. Charlie, these are fascinating stories. Maybe somebody wants to hear them all again. Good news, you can. You can play our program anytime you like. The podcast is waiting for you at thelandandthebook.org. A full broadcast today, including our conversation about freedom from the book of Exodus, here on The Land and the Book. Are you searching for freedom? Feeling stuck, but maybe unsure how to release your potential? Wondering what the world would actually look like under the reign of a generous, liberating king? Well, the book of Exodus is a fabulous resource to turn to for answers, and that's where we're headed next. Hey, glad you've joined us for segment two of The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and I want you to join me in thinking of a creative way that you might be able to image Jesus in a powerful way with a Jewish friend of yours. So you're engaged in a conversation with your Jewish friend, and it's turning towards spiritual things. The question is, what kind of Jewish questions should you ask of your Jewish friend? Greg Savitt, what do you think? Well, I think you should use the Socratic method. That's a way that I've learned where there is questions and that leads to teaching. I like to ask Jewish people, do they believe in God? Do they believe in the Messiah? How are their sins forgiven? What do they think of repentance? 
and ask them those questions. So what if they respond, though, in ways that are clearly not consistent with biblical truth? You don't want to get into an argument. No, you don't want to get into an argument, but you want to share from Scripture, uh, the Scripture in Exodus 32, when Moses says his name will be blotted out of the book of life. So if there's a book of life, there's also a book of death. So there's heaven and hell there. Also, King David talks about a book of life. If there's a book of life, there's a book of death. Yeah. If they're just a book of life, that means Hitler, Mussolini, and Pol Pot are all going to be in the, in heaven. Greg Sabbath serves with Rock of Israel and joins us with insights here on The Land and the Book. For many of us, Exodus is a favorite book in Scripture. It is one of mine, and I'm so glad we get to sit down now and talk about that book with Natasha Sistrunk-Robinson. Natasha is president of T3 Leadership Solutions Incorporated and visionary founder of the 501c3 nonprofit Leadership Links Incorporated. She's a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy and Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Natasha is also a sought-after international speaker, leadership coach, and consultant with more than 20 years of leadership experience in the military and federal government, academic, and nonprofit sectors. She's written several books, including Voices of Lament, A Sojourner's Truth, and the one we're talking with her about today, Journey to Freedom. Natasha has honorably served her country as a Marine Corps officer and with the Department of Homeland Security. We're honored to have you on The Land and the Book today. Natasha, thanks for your time. Thank you so much for having me, John. I appreciate it. Well, you suggest that Exodus is about more than Moses leading the children of Israel out of slavery and receiving the Ten Commandments. What's the more that you want us to understand? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Yeah, I remember, uh, you know, really starting to study the Word for the first time in college. And the lady who discipled me, she would always say, Natasha, the Bible is God's book. It's God's story. And I like to remind people that when I'm teaching, whenever I'm teaching the Bible, that it's God's story. God is revealing himself to us. He's helping us understand his character. Um, And especially in, in Exodus, he's really shaping a people. He's telling Israel what it means to become a set-apart people, to become his chosen people. And that was by his own choice, not because of their righteousness. Mm. And therefore, he's calling them to uh, show up in the world in a certain way. And so I really think that's the big idea, the big picture here of who God is, the people that he's called, and what role that plays in the big redemptive story that God has throughout the entire book and throughout history. Yeah. Hey, what's your favorite scene in the entire book of Exodus? If I could limit you to one, what would it be? Oh, um, depending on the day, <laughs> I think, it, I mean, seriously, what comes to mind today is Moses at the burning bush, right? Probably a familiar one for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the reason I'm thinking of it today is because I'm reminded of Moses' self-perception and it just kind of reminds me of our own humanity yes. and how emotions can sometimes take center stage when God is calling us to do something great. And uh, we're saying no, but God is saying, <laughs> I'm not asking you to do this in your own strength. I'm telling you that I will be with you. I will go with you. I will make provisions for you. I will provide the support that you need. I will give you the words to speak. I will give you the tools to use. And how difficult it is sometimes for us 
even with all that assurance to say yes to the things that God has called us to. And so that's just kind of what came to mind, that God's faithfulness in the call, mm-hmm. um, the sacredness of the moment and the humanity of the leader who actually became quite great, you know, for all intents and purposes, but didn't see himself that way yes. at all and was very uncertain about the call on his life. That's Natasha Sistrunk Robinson, who's written Journey to Freedom. You know, since you've touched on it, let me just ask you, you know, in the life of Moses, we're given a sense of God's attitudes and equipping toward those of us who feel under-equipped. Moses certainly did. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, and, and what does that say to the rest of us who maybe feel under-equipped for something we sense God is calling us to? I believe that we are all humans, right, created in the image of God. That's what we learned in the beginning of the book. And we are created on purpose, for purpose. Um, And that includes responsibility. It includes agency or freedom of choice. Um, But it also includes leadership. Some of the language we use sometimes, and we look at Genesis 1 and 2 and how God is forming things and how he created Adam in the garden to work. That's one of the things God did. And then he, you know, formed Eve. And in that, he gives them responsibility, right? And so some some theologians will call this the cultural mandate, that they are to exercise dominion on the earth, and they are to basically lead and represent God on the earth and ensure that the seeds with plant, they flourish, you know, that the animals are, you know, are taken care of and that they are really caring for and being advocates for each other. That's what we see at the very beginning before the fall. And so I just really, it's important for me, I have a spiritual gift of leadership to, you know, remind all people everywhere of our responsibility for leadership. And Mm -hmm. I think that's for men and women, for boys and girls, especially when we think about New Testament believers and the work of the Holy Spirit in us that we're all called to leadership. And I think as Christians, especially looking back into this Old Testament, how it informs our faith, it gives us an anchoring of how we are to lead Mm -hmm. because of how God reveals himself to us in the Old Testament. She's a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy and Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Natasha Sistrunk-Robinson, who's written A Journey to Freedom. You know, since you've touched on leadership, let's be honest here. Moses dealt with a group of people who were, for the most part, hard-hearted and uh, hard-headed. They didn't get it. What should that say to those of us who are in ministry today, perhaps in leadership positions? Listen, not just Moses. We see this all throughout the text, right? Right. (laughs) uh, You know, at the time we were recording, I just finished reading up um, one of the Gospels and reading in Hebrews now. But what I see, especially if I look at, for example, the Gospel of Mark, um, which was the same thing we see happening in Exodus, is that Jesus, the perfect God-man, is present with them, teaching them, his disciples, modeling for them the way, and Throughout the gospel, we see him saying, do you not remember? Do you still not yet understand? Oh, you of little faith. Like these are kind of constant things he's saying about his own disciples. And so I say if Jesus is fully God, fully man, perfect human, and the best leader that there ever is, and his own disciples didn't get it then you can rest assured that we're going to be leading people quite often that don't get Mm -hmm. it. And that's what Moses dealt with, people that really, if I could be honest, just kind of getting in their own way, they're stuck or they're so focused on what was going on in their previous time in Egypt that they don't have a vision of what it means to live a life of freedom or liberation or victory Mm. for the land that God had promised. And so I hope that's encouragement for us that 
a lot of times if people are not responding to our leadership, and that can be in anywhere, whether we're parenting, whether we're in pastoring in churches, whether we are teaching in schools or whatever our workplace or the place of service, people are not always going to respond to our leadership. And that's not an indicator at all of whether or not we are great leaders. And it's not an indicator at all as to whether or not God has called us. But it's important for us as leaders to be attentive to how God is speaking and how God is leading us. Like great leaders are first led, right? Great leaders are first led by God. And so we Mm -hmm. want to be attentive to that so that we can be the leaders that God calls us to be. And that we will do that faithfully regardless of what the crowd is saying. I like that comment. Great leaders are first led. Well said. As uh, you've worked through Exodus, you've observed that this book helps us understand how God reveals his presence and his attitude toward issues of uh, things like justice, leadership, and social responsibility. I want to spend a little bit of time here. Let's look first at justice. Where does Exodus shed light here on issues of justice? Oh, I think I have a whole chapter, and one of the lessons is really focused on that, that God loves a just society. I think what people will see if they really did a deep dive into the Ten Commandments, you will see that, right? So when God says, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not murder, um, thou shalt not bear false witness, um, like the Bible teaches us that justice cannot be had apart from righteousness. And so what God is trying to teach the people is how to live in right relationships with their neighbors. The greatest commandment, Jesus would say, would be to love your neighbor, right? Like loving God first. Um, with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's what we start seeing modeled just in the Ten Commandments of you want to exercise the golden rule, treat your neighbor in the way that you would want to be treated. Mm -hmm. That's what we see there. But then there's all these other laws that start to come. We see in Exodus, but also, you know, there's probably some deeper dives of that in Leviticus as well and Deuteronomy. But we see these laws, and basically what God is doing in the text is he's really acknowledging their standard practices of kind of what they learn and how they normally behave with each other. He said, now, let me tell you what would be a higher calling, what would be a higher response, hmm. you know? Um, and so there's things in there about restitution. Like if you end up killing someone's animal, you you give them another animal, yeah. right? You know, and, and there's things there about marriage, you know, um, and how you treat uh, women, how you treat the poor, how you treat the slave that, you know, the person who's enslaved among you, you don't treat them like a foreigner. You treat them as someone who belongs to your own household. And so there's all these things we start to see in Exodus about how God intends for humans to deal righteously with Mm -hmm. each other. And it's only when we do that that we start to see justice taking place. She's the author of several books, including Voices of Lament, A Sojourner's Truth, and Mentor for Life. And she hosts a Sojourner's Truth podcast. We're talking with Natasha Sistrunk-Robinson today on The Land of the Book. You also suggest that Exodus reveals God's attitudes about social responsibility. Give us one example. Yeah, so one of the ways that we see social responsibility addressed is, and this is perhaps a contentious topic, but slavery, right? And so slavery in the Bible, one thing I take great care to do in this Bible study is that slavery in the Bible is not the same as slavery that we know about, certainly, I would say on two levels, in the transatlantic slave trade for the United States, but also what we would call human trafficking today, right? Mm -hmm. So those are very specific forms of slavery that are very different than what we see in the Bible. And one of the ways I would say that Exodus is very, very clear in that God would be against those two types of slavery that I mentioned is that God says in Exodus that people should not be enslaved as a result of kidnapping. 
right? Mm -hmm. God does not honor that. And so when we look at like the transatlantic slave trade, or we look at human trafficking or modern slavery that we talk about today, in a lot of those cases, kidnapping was the reason that people who were once free had become enslaved. What we see in Exodus is a lot of times people are, um, it's a form of indentured servitude. And so if people would work and they have like different tiers and levels of work. And sometimes they would sell themselves to their boss or sell a family member to their boss so that they in turn would get resources to take care for their family. But even that, you know, one thing we see in, in the Bible is that God was saying that no slavery should last forever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? That's one thing. Right. Too. And so you think about the year of Jubilee. So like every seven years, the land is, you know, is to rest. You return things. Um, if somebody got a loan or they acquired a debt, you forgive them of that debt. Um, if someone is enslaved, you release them from their bondage. And so God is setting conditions while honoring kind of the way that people were accustomed to living. And God is saying they should not be in this condition forever. However, they got there. They should never get there by kidnapping, but however they got there, they should not be in that position forever. So the idea is that over the course of the time that they're working, they should be in a better condition when they leave than when they came. And you don't send your slaves away empty-handed. That's another thing that we see very clearly in Exodus. And so, um, yeah, I, I would love for people to do a deeper dive into that because I think a lot of times, and especially when we think about teaching uh, leadership, education, and discipleship, we are using a lot of the same words, mm -hmm. but we're not understanding and having the history that we're not talking about the same things. And so I would really love people to do um, some more work and um, really take some attention in, into that part of the Bible study. And this eight-week Bible study is a great uh, journey for you as you hear this conversation to take Natasha up on her invitation there. Journey to Freedom is the book, an eight-week Bible study into Exodus. A link to that book at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Thank you for your conversation today. Sure appreciate your insights, Natasha. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. All right. We'll do it again sometime. Coming up, Charlie Dyer with more questions and some answers, too, on The Land and the Book. It's segment three on The Land and the Book, and we're glad you're a part of it. I'm John Gaker. Across from our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, his Bible is open, his email inbox is just plumb full of questions. Never seems to be a shortage of those, Charlie. Oh, uh, they're not, which is great because when people are asking questions, it means they're looking into the Word of God. Hmm. Maybe you've wondered what it would take to learn Hebrew. Would you love to explore the Bible in one of its original languages or be able to better communicate when you visit Israel? Well, to help you get started, our friends at Life and Messiah invite you to attend a free introductory Hebrew lesson with experienced Hebrew teacher Melissa Briggs. This group lesson over Zoom is suitable both for those interested in biblical Hebrew and for those interested in modern Hebrew. Melissa is passionate about making the riches of the Hebrew language accessible to anyone. To sign up for this free lesson, all you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. Be sure to sign up today and begin your journey of learning Hebrew. Yeah, Melissa has been a guest several times on The Land and the Book, a delightful way of, of teaching in, in a way that's just refreshing and easy to grasp. Head to lifeinmessiah.org. We'll dig into our first question of the day, this one from Tony. 
He says, uh, I've been listening for years, and the podcast makes it so convenient. Well, I'm glad he points that out. Maybe you have never uh, taken advantage of that. It's right there at the website, thelandandthebook.org. All right, his question. Can you tell me if Christians are considered Israel slash God's chosen people since the time Christ ascended? Is God calling us back to Israel in these last days like the Jewish people? I don't think this, but I'm having a hard time explaining it to my wife who does. We agree that we were grafted into the inheritance, salvation, and relationship with God. But can you offer some guidance here? Yeah, and I think the key passage when it comes to the relationship between the church and Israel is Romans 11. It's the one spot in the New Testament where the writer, in this case Paul, says, I want to explain that relationship. Paul makes it clear in 11.1 that God has not rejected his people Israel. While Paul does acknowledge that Israel nationally has been temporarily broken off from access to the place of spiritual blessing and the church has been grafted in, he says that in verse 17, he goes on to make it clear that God's promises to the Jewish people remain intact. The partial hardening that has happened to Israel will only continue, he says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Uh, Then Paul notes that a time of national salvation for the Jewish people will take place. In verse 26, he says, and so all Israel will be saved. Paul ends this section by saying, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, in verse 28, meaning that right now most Jewish people are opposed to the message of the gospel. But then he quickly adds, from the standpoint of God's choice, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's verses 28 to 29. Now those verses are the heart of the issue. The fathers he has in mind are the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made unconditional promises to them and their heirs. And those promises God made to the Jewish people through the patriarchs are, he says, irrevocable. Israel has a future because God doesn't break his promises. And personally, I'm thankful for that because uh, if God broke his promises to Israel, then what's to stop him from breaking the promises he made to us? Thankfully, God is a God who keeps his word both to the Jewish people and to us. And that's why God will someday resume his program for Israel to fulfill those promises he made to them. The church has not permanently replaced Israel. That's the key message of Romans 11. And that is a huge, huge issue that we need to get a hold of. Thank you, Charlie. Paul asks, why do people oppose judicial reform in Israel? Well, the answer is just a bit complex here. Uh, In many ways, uh, what's been proposed in Israel is very similar to our system in the U.S., where the legislative branch of the government has a say in who's appointed as a judge. It's part of our system of checks and balances. In Israel, the Supreme Court and the Bar Association hold a majority vote on appointing judges, which means the Knesset, their legislative body, doesn't have a way to keep the courts from moving in a direction contrary to the will of the voters. Now, while that sounds like a good thing, many there oppose it for an entirely different reason. Most Israelis are secular, and they're afraid that the conservative majority in the Knesset will ultimately choose judges who are religiously conservative in their outlook. In essence, those protesting fear the ultra-Orthodox will try to impose their views of what the judiciary ought to be saying on the legal system. That's Charlie Dyer. This is The Land in the Book. Segment three is questions and answers. Here's one from Nancy. She says, I have a question regarding 1 Samuel 18, 19. Saul gave his eldest daughter to Adriel, the Maholothite, for a wife. I've used all of my resources and cannot learn what a Maholothite is. Is that a family in the tribe of Israel? Thank you for your willingness to answer. Yeah, those are some of those that sound like the termites, don't they? Uh, (laughs) But the term Maholothite actually indicates Adriel was from the town of Mahola, or more likely it's Abel Mahola, 
which was also later the birthplace and hometown of Elisha the prophet, uh, 1 Kings 19. Uh, it's similar to using the term Bethlehemite to describe someone who's from the town of Bethlehem. The town itself was near the Jordan Valley, actually south of Bethshan. Okay. Here's one from Jonathan. I was reading John 13, and I've always read this passage as Jesus predicting that Peter will deny him. However, this time around, I was wondering, is it possible he was commanding Peter to deny him? I was thinking it might be a command because Jesus knows he needs Peter to not be imprisoned. Similarly, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, that could have been a command because Jesus knew he needed to be crucified at this time for maximum impact. Is it possible that these are commands rather than predictions? Well, you know, when we read them in English, it does suggest that that could be possible, but it's not quite the same in Greek. Uh, In Greek, uh, a command is usually given in an imperative form of a verb, but in John 13, 38, the verb for you will betray me is actually an aorist middle subjunctive. It's not an imperative. Uh, in the same way in verse 21, when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, there the verb is uh, a future active indicative. It's not an imperative. So in both cases, Jesus is stating a fact about what's going to happen, not issuing a command saying, this is what they must do. Linda wants to know about John chapter 2, where Jesus turns water into wine. Jesus told the servants to fill the empty stone pots with water, and then he told them to draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Could it be that the water had turned to wine after the servants had drawn out the water in their pitchers and before they filled the master's cup, that the water turned to wine in the hands of the servants as they obeyed Jesus' command? Just wondering. Yeah, and I'd actually never thought about that before, but the text would at least allow for the fact that the water turned to wine after being drawn out by the servants. But my one hesitation in in going that way is the fact that John says Jesus had them fill six large water pots with 20 to 30 gallons of water. That's somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons. If the water didn't turn into wine until after being drawn out, then all the remaining liquid in the pots would still be water. Uh, But the point of the story seems to be that Jesus turned all the water in the pots into wine. So that's why I assume the miracle happened while the water was inside the pots and before it was drawn out to be served. But I, I do need to add something here. Those are the kind of questions being asked that are the essence of good Bible study. So thanks for asking that kind of question. That's a good point. It's the land and the book from Moody Radio. Questions and Charlie's answers. Stephen asks, in John 19, 27, we're told that the Apostle John welcomed Jesus' mother Mary into his home. In Matthew 13, we're told Jesus had four brothers and at least two sisters. Why did Jesus' siblings not welcome their mother Mary into any of their homes? I need to actually answer this in two ways. First, why John? And then why not Mary's other children? Well, James and John were the sons of Zebedee. Now, if you compare the women at the cross listed in Matthew 27 and in Mark 9, the mother of the sons of Zebedee is identified in Mark as Salome, who was present at the crucifixion. In John 19:25, she's also identified as Jesus's mother's sister. Now, that makes Jesus, James, and John cousins. So in that sense, Jesus didn't pick a non-family member to take care of Mary. Uh, He chose a relative. But why not choose Mary's own children? Well, John 7, 5 seems to provide the answer. It says there, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Following Jesus's resurrection, we know his half-brother James did come to faith, but at the time of the crucifixion, even he apparently had not. So Jesus entrusted the care of his mother to a close relative who was also a close follower at that time. 
Robin asks, when David brought the ark back to Jerusalem, why did David place it inside the tent he had made and not in the tabernacle? Where was the tabernacle at this time? Well, after the capture of the ark by the Philistines in 1 Samuel 5, the different parts of the tabernacle apparently were scattered. While the ark eventually was returned to Israel and found its way to Jerusalem under David, we know other pieces remain scattered. For example, David received the bread from the table of showbread when he visited the priests at Nob while fleeing from Saul. That's 1 Samuel 21. And Solomon went to Gibeon to sacrifice on the altar a burnt offering uh, it mentioned in 1 Kings. Uh, but the passage also says the actual tent which Moses had built in the wilderness was also at Gibeon. So from the time of the capture of the ark by the Philistines to the actual construction of the temple by Solomon, the different parts were evidently scattered in different directions. And rather than bringing them all together, David simply constructed another temporary structure to hold the ark while preparing the plans for that future temple uh, that would be built by his son Solomon. Well, here at The Land of the Book, we've got a podcast that makes it easy for you to hear and share every week's broadcast. You'll find it at thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to Charlie's devotional next. Anytime you're walking down the Mount of Olives in Israel, it's going to be a great day. I mean, it just is. Hi, I'm John Geiger. This is The Land of the Book. It's segment for our devotional. And Charlie, we're going to the Mount of Olives, are we? We are, John. We're going to hike down the Mount of Olives with a quick stop for a very important lesson from the Book of Proverbs. All right. We'll get to that after this thought from a traveler to the Holy Land who comes back with a great perspective that uh, they wanted to share with us. Listen to this. I recently returned from a trip to Israel, but before I went on the Holy Land tour, I was reminded of a quote from Jerome, the man who translated the Bible into Latin and spent much of his life in the Holy Land. Jerome said, just as those who have seen Athens understand Greek history better, and just as those who have seen Troy understand the words of the poet Virgil, thus one will comprehend the Holy Scriptures with a clearer understanding, who has seen the land of Judah with his own eyes and has come to know the references to the ancient towns and places and their names. Well, that was my experience. As a result of being in Israel and seeing the places of biblical significance, I know the Bible better. And through knowing the Bible better, I hope to know the Lord better as well. I love the title that you've given to today's devotional, Charlie, A Tale of Two Men, and it's based in Proverbs chapter 10. I'll let you take it from here. Uh, Thanks, John. Well, for today's devotional, I need you to follow me down the Mount of Olives. Now, take your time, walk carefully. As you can tell, the road is steep, and it's easy to slip on bits of loose gravel. We don't want any scraped up knees or elbows in the group. And watch out for cars. This narrow street is actually a two-lane thoroughfare with cars whizzing by from both directions. One thing you'll appreciate on this morning's walk is that we're heading downhill. You'll gain new appreciation for Jesus when you realize that those times when he stayed with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus at Bethany, he would have walked this mountain both directions on his way to and from Jerusalem. Jesus was no wimp. Uh, Just to our left, is an opening in the wall alongside the road. Let's slip inside to get out of the way of any traffic. 
Now, I can see by the expression on your face that you weren't expecting to be standing in a graveyard, a massive Jewish graveyard here on the Mount of Olives. But don't be too surprised. The prophet Zechariah said that when the Messiah arrives, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Through the centuries, religious Jews have wanted to be buried on the Mount of Olives so they could rise to greet the Messiah when he comes. This is the largest Jewish cemetery on earth, with as many as 150,000 graves from the past 500 years, though some graves here on the mountain date back to Old Testament and New Testament times. The graves you see here are the tombstones. The bodies are actually buried in the ground just beneath. But before you take your pictures, I want you to notice the small stones on many of the graves. These visitation stones, or stones of remembrance, were placed there by friends and family of the deceased who visited and left a stone to pay their respect. But why are some graves virtually covered with small stones while others have none? To answer that, let's gather over here to the side while I read Proverbs 10, verse 7. The memory of the righteous will be a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. The reality of life is that some individuals are remembered long after their death because of the positive impact they made on the lives of others. And sadly, others are quickly forgotten. Now, we don't know the reason for the lack of stones on the graves here on the Mount of Olives. Some might have had few family or friends remaining alive to mourn their passing. But we do know in life there are individuals whose impact is felt far beyond the day they died, for good or for evil. Now, I want to illustrate Proverbs 10:7 by focusing on the lives of two such individuals. One was internationally known. The other had a far smaller circle of influence. But each left a legacy remembered by those whose lives they impacted. I'm almost certain the first individual is unknown to nearly everyone listening today. Unless you grew up in rural northeastern Pennsylvania or live in a retirement community north of Tampa, you never came into contact with Larry Hummel. Now, I first came to know Larry when he came to pastor a charge of four small churches in the county where I grew up. The church my family attended had about 60 people on the rolls, with about 30 or so in attendance most Sundays. The other churches were slightly smaller. Larry preached four times every Sunday, but the total number in attendance combined was less than 150. Not exactly the kind of ministry most seminary graduates would want to take on, but Larry threw himself into the work. He studied hard to prepare messages to feed the four small churches. But he didn't just hide away in his study. For over 25 years, he looked for every opportunity possible to reach the communities for Christ. He started an outreach ministry at the county fair that's still going strong. He visited parishioners in the hospital and then stopped to pray with anyone else who needed a comforting word. He got the youth involved in Bible study, and wherever he went, he shared the good news about Jesus. I know because I was one of those who came to faith through his persistence. Now, I have to admit, I wasn't that excited about this relatively young pastor who kept wanting the youth group to get involved in Bible study. But then he asked if we would like to go to Ocean City, New Jersey for a week. Sun, sand, and surf, you bet. Of course, I don't recall him telling us that it was a Youth for Christ conference. And on a Thursday night between my junior and senior years in high school, my best friend and I both came to faith at that conference. Larry's faithfulness paid off. One of the four churches, the one we attended, asked him to become its full-time pastor. The church grew to about 250, which was half the size of the small community in which it was located. But his impact was felt far beyond that small area. He gave us a vision for reaching the world. 
because of his faithfulness. From a human perspective, hundreds of people are in heaven. Many marriages were salvaged, and the church punched far above its weight in terms of sending people into ministry and onto the mission field. Now, I've been following Christ for over 50 years because of Larry Hummel's faithfulness. Larry was born in 1937 and died in 2015, and yet the number of stones of remembrance on his grave would be relatively modest. He didn't preach to thousands, but the hundreds who did sit under his ministry can affirm with Proverbs 10:7 that his memory will continue to be a blessing for decades to come. It's virtually certain you've never heard of Larry Hummel, but I'm equally certain that you know the second individual in my tale of two men. In fact, it's hard to imagine anyone alive today who has not heard of him, even though he died when Larry Hummel was just eight years old. His name is Adolf Hitler. He rose to power in Germany during the Great Depression and, at least initially, was adored by tens of thousands of Germans. After Hitler came to power, the popularity of the name Adolf spiked in Germany. Many wanted to name their sons after this charismatic leader. But we all know how Hitler's power, influence, and leadership ended. As World War II ground to a conclusion, the name Adolf tanked in popularity. From 1951 on, the name was barely used. Today, it's difficult to find any child being given that name. Now, look back at the gravestones here in the cemetery. And then remember Proverbs 10:7. The memory of the righteous will be a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. We live in an age when success is equated with power, influence, and prestige. People are encouraged to climb the ladder of success, even if it means having to climb over others to reach the top. But few stop in their race to the top to see where it ultimately ends. It was Howard Hendricks who wisely observed, You spend your life climbing the ladder of success, only to find out when you reach the top that it's leaning against the wrong wall. What do you want your legacy to be? How do you want to be remembered? Fame and fortune are fleeting. Power and influence follow you into the grave. But spending your life investing in others will pay eternal dividends. Remember, the memory of the righteous will be a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. The bottom line, invest your life wisely. Boy, that's a sobering, sobering devotional. Again, Proverbs 10, verse 7 is the verse. Check it out. Maybe that's one you want to memorize. And, you know, if you're appreciating this broadcast, we'd love to hear from you. What was the last time you sent us an email? Just like you, we love to get email from friends. And you can connect with us at thelandandthebook@moody.edu. The land and the book at moody.edu. That, by the way, is also the email address you use to get a Bible question to Charlie. The land and the book at moody.edu. Charlie, a quick word about our podcast. Many are finding it very helpful uh, to listen on demand. Yeah, it's a great way for someone to listen to the land and the book or to listen to the program again. Uh, if you're not in a place where you can uh, get to the program that week, uh, go to the podcast. Uh, you can listen to it anytime at your convenience or hear the program a second time. That's at thelandandthebook.org. Time goes too quickly. We're glad you shared your time with us for today's edition of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.